The president, who once preached law and order, apparently used the Justice Department as something of a sock puppet. The lead starts right now. Allegations that the Trump Justice Department seized data from the former president's political enemies, including from Democratic members of Congress and even from their families. Does President Biden intend to do anything about what critics say is yet another example of Trump egregiously abusing power? President Biden today holding his first big meeting with allies as he prepares for the showdown with Putin. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki will join me live in moments. Plus, the first fully vaccinated crews in North America returning to port with two passengers testing positive for COVID. Are these cruise ships shoving off too soon? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today with the world lead and the official start of the G7 Summit. Today's gathering with some of the world's largest economies may be one of the most consequential in recent memory with a pandemic raging throughout much of the world, a global economy still in shock, and of course, threats from Russia and China rising. This is a major moment and test for President Biden. He has been near the center of American foreign policy literally for decades, but never as a member of the World Leaders Club. President Biden has likened the summit to a wartime gathering, comparing the American vaccine-sharing efforts to the production of tanks and planes during World War II. But now, as CNN's Phil Manningly reports for us, Biden is focused on getting U.S. allies all on the same page ahead of his meeting with Russian President Putin, sending a message of unity after four years of fractured alliances. For the world's most powerful democracies, a show of unity on the world stage. It is genuinely wonderful to see everybody in person. Smiles and warmth at the start of the G7 summit, a notable departure from the prior four years, driven by one clear difference, the U.S. president. President Biden, for decades a key figure in U.S. foreign policy, now leading it himself. It's a breath of fresh air, uh, a lot of things they want to do together. I am, of course, happy that the American president is present here. Being able to meet Joe Biden is obviously important because he stands for the commitment to multilateralism, which we were missing in recent years. With a clearly stated goal to leverage the strength of the seven largest market economies to face down rising challenges across the globe and reinvigorate alliances that have faced severe tests. From the real-time challenge of the pandemic, where Biden's pledge to donate 500 million vaccine doses to low- and middle-income countries turned today into a pledge of 1 billion doses from the entire G7. We're going to help lead the world out of this pandemic, working alongside our global partners. To laying out the economic roadmap for a post-pandemic world, a driving force for Biden's sweeping domestic agenda. Not just to build back, but to build back better. That all-too-familiar phrase echoing across the Atlantic. We need to make sure that as we recover, we level up across our societies and we, we build back better. A sign of unity that underscores the embrace of the new U.S. leader, something Biden's top advisors view as a crucial element just days before a critical sit-down with Russian President Vladimir Putin. The two, for now, not scheduled to hold a joint news conference, officials say. But Biden advisors have been clear. They expect the president to deliver his own clear and firm message as to what that will be exactly. So you have to deliver it. 
And Jake, there's no question there's a warmth to this meeting that didn't perhaps exist over the course of the last four years, but there's also a level of urgency. When you talk to the president's advisors, when you talk to aides of the other world leaders, they acknowledge that, yes, the good feelings and the smiles and the happiness, the shows of unity, those are very important, but it's also a moment to deliver. And I think that's the focus that you're going to see over the course of the next couple of days, Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly in Falmouth, England. Thank you so much. Let's bring in the White House Press Secretary, Jen Psaki, who is traveling with President Biden in St. Ives. Uh, Jen, thanks for joining us. Let's start with the pending meeting with Putin. Thank um, you. So we know that the Russian government was, at least according to the intelligence community in the U.S., behind the solar winds hack last year, not to mention all the bad actors in Russia launching ransomware attacks on the U.S. this year. Putin has two Americans, Trevor Reed and Paul Whelan, in jail on fishy charges. He, in all likelihood, poisoned and has definitely jailed dissident Alexei Navalny. He just this week outlawed Navalny's political movement. Why reward Putin with a summit with the president of the United States? Is there really hope that there's anything that can be accomplished with this man using diplomacy? Well, Jake, let me first say we definitely don't see it as a reward. We see it as a meeting that's in the interest of the United States because we want to move to a place in our relationship with Russia that's more stable and more predictable. So he's actually meeting with President Putin not because of the not in spite of the differences, I should say, but because of the differences, because all of those issues you raised, all of these challenging components, how adversarial the relationship has been, that's not in our interest. And we want to find a way forward. You have said, quote, um, we're not expecting to have a huge outcome, unquote, from the meeting with Putin. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that this meeting is more about communication than any deliverables, any tangible achievements. Um, So why have it? There's nothing that takes the place of face-to-face diplomacy. And we've seen that already at the G7, right? We moved from 500 million doses the United States announced to now a billion doses from the G7. There's going to be agreement on a global minimum tax. We're moving towards agreement on an alternative to the Belt and Road Initiative uh, that China has advocated for or pushed for around the world. These are all important developments. But even with adversarial relationships, as we have with President Putin, it's important to have that face-to-face diplomacy, for the president to have the opportunity to be direct, to be candid, to be clear about what the consequences will be, about a range of actions. You mentioned cyber. Ransomware will also be a topic of discussion. The incursion on the border of Ukraine, problematic human rights abuses. This is an opportunity to discuss all of those issues, but also where we can work together. Nuclear stability, uh, negotiations with Iran. Those are issues where we see an opportunity in a forum for working together. They'll all be a part of the discussion next Wednesday. Right, but Putin and people in Putin's Russia are attacking the United States right now in the cyber arena. Your energy secretary told me just Sunday that these hackers could right now shut down the power grid in the United States. Um, Do you think that Putin understands words more than he understands, say, a counterattack? Well, first of all, Jake, we've never taken action or counteraction uh, off the table. Uh, We don't always uh, preview our punches, uh, but we reserve every option uh, to respond to problematic behavior. And certainly, even though these ransomware attacks came from criminals, came from actors who were not the Russian government, in our view, but that's still problematic, and the Russian government has a responsibility to take action. So clearly that will be a part of the discussion, and we certainly haven't taken any actions off the table either. Putin's spokesperson told CNN that the poisoning and jailing of dissident Alexei Navalny is not on the agenda of the meeting. Is that true? It may not be on his agenda, 
Uh, and that's not a surprise, but certainly the president has every intention to raise human rights abuses, the jailing of dissidents uh, and activists, uh, which is a violation of what we feel should be norms around the world. How about Trevor Reed and Paul Whelan, Americans that are in Russian jails right now on very fishy charges? Agree, Jake, and we've raised that at many levels, uh, raised their jailing at many levels. And certainly, again, uh, human rights abuses, the jailing of individuals, of course, of Americans, uh, will all be a part of the discussion. The president is not going to hold back in raising issues where he has concern, and he'll be straightforward and direct with President Putin. That's the benefit of meeting in person. That's different than a phone call. So here at Holmes, I want to get your response because the New York Times was the first to report the CNN has confirmed that Trump's Department of Justice issued secret subpoenas for Apple to get data from at least two House Intelligence Committee Democratic congressmen, along with their staff, family members. Uh, Democratic Congressman Ted Lieu tweeted, the DOJ, the Department of Justice, was aware of this scandal for years, including this year. Why is the Justice Department asking for an inspector general investigation now? This shouldn't be how the Garland Department of Justice works. Your job is not to maximize presidential power. Do better, unquote. Uh, What's your response? Well, first of all, an IG investigation looks into how this happened, how it could possibly happen. And let me be absolutely clear. The behavior, these actions, the president finds them absolutely appalling. He ran for president in part because of the abuse of power by the last president and by the last attorney general. And he also served, as you all know, in Congress for 36 years as a senator and certainly sees that as a respected and third body of government. So this behavior is and is atrocious and certainly will not be a model for how we behave. And there's an investigation, as you noted, that was also announced today to look into this uh, this awful behavior from the prior administration. The U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan today shut down visa services because of the surge in COVID cases in that country. Visas that thousands of Afghans who spent years, decades in some cases, helping the U.S. military have been desperately trying to get because their lives are tangibly at risk, with the Taliban reportedly hunting them down. Republican Congressman Michael McCall, the top Republican on House Foreign Affairs, he's calling for the Biden administration to evacuate these Afghans who helped our service members while they wait for their visas because the process is taking way too long. Will President Biden commit to getting these Afghans who helped our men and women out of the country as soon as possible before U.S. service members leave in September? Well, first of all, let me say the president values uh, the role, the incredible bravery, the courage that these translators and individuals who have every right should be applying for these visas. We actually had taken steps in recent weeks to expedite processing and put more staff and resources on it. And obviously the COVID pandemic is uh, impacting countries around the world, including Afghanistan, in very devastating ways. In terms of the process for how it would work, that would really be the purview of the State Department. I know that's a part of the government and part of the, the Biden administration, but I just simply don't have an update on that. But I can tell you that it is certainly a priority and one that uh, we will absolutely be looking into. All right. I mean, this is a story that we've been covering now for years and under the Biden administration for months and literally they're being slaughtered by the Taliban. Now, I I get that Biden's only been president for a few months, but this is going to happen on his watch. Uh, And I mean, well, Jake, but Jake, but Jake, to be clear, though, we have we have in recent months, we have expedited processing. We've increased the number of staffing there because we agree and we recognize the courage and bravery of these individuals 
it should be something we, we do everything we can from the federal government to address. You're asking me specifically about expediting the departure of individuals out of Afghanistan. I just don't have more information for you on that, but that doesn't change the fact that these are individuals we want to help. We've taken steps in recent weeks to help uh, in order to you know, help address their challenges they're having on the ground now. I, we, are, we agree with you. Okay. Um, finally, uh, royals watchers were quick to catch you calling Queen Elizabeth the Queen of England. Uh, this is not a mistake I would have caught, to be completely candid, but as I'm sure you are now well aware, there hasn't actually been a Queen of England since 1707. Her Majesty is the Queen of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth. And uh, uh, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. She's Go ahead. She certainly is. I appreciate the opportunity to correct myself. I will note that it was in, a tw- in an engagement of answering questions on Twitter. Not that that excuses it, but you're absolutely right. And I will forever uh, never make that mistake again about Her Majesty, the Queen of the United Kingdom. And Commonwealth. And Commonwealth. Thank you. <laughs> White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, thanks so much. More ahead on stunning thanks, new Jake. abuse of power allegations President Trump accused of sicking his DOJ on sitting members of Congress, Democrats, seizing their data. This afternoon, Trump's former attorney general responded to the story. And do we have a deal? Ten senators working on infrastructure say they have hammered it out, but the White House and progressives are saying not so fast. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the Justice Department's watchdog, Inspector General, will now investigate what very well appears to be a chilling potential abuse of power at the direction of former Attorney General Bill Barr under then-President Donald Trump. Sources tell CNN that Trump's Department of Justice went to great lengths to secretly subpoena data from Apple to get phone and email records from more than 100 accounts, the targets, key members of Congress, including two Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee, Chairman Adam Schiff and Congressman Eric Swalwell, both from California, and those are just the ones we know about. The motive is to track down sources behind news reports that revealed contacts between Trump associates and Russian officials. We learned just this week of similar efforts that targeted reporters at The Washington Post, The New York Times, and here at CNN. So just how egregious was all of this? Let's bring in two former Department of Justice voices. Elliot Williams was the Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Legislative Affairs in the Obama administration. Bill Burke was a federal prosecutor and is now lead counsel for Trump White House lawyer Don McGahn at Quinn Emanuel uh, Law Firm. Thanks to both of you for being here. Appreciate it. So, Elliot, it's not unusual for the Department of Justice to pursue subpoenas for data, but it is unusual to do that for members of Congress, right? It is incredibly unusual to do it for members of Congress, and particularly to do it for members of Congress when the president has been so explicit about the need to go after his political opponents. Now, look, certainly members of Congress can engage in wrongdoing and can mishandle information and can potentially uh, get caught up in criminal liability. And if they do, they should be investigated and prosecuted. The problem is that President Trump had a long track record of even identifying Adam Schiff by name. You know, February 25th, 2020, there's a press conference in India and says Adam Schiff is out here leaking. We need to you know, investigate Adam Schiff and so on. And so... Um, you know, even though it's, it's incredibly uncommon um, and it's par for the course for President Trump. So, Bill, Apple publicly shares how often the U.S. government makes requests for its data, which didn't begin under Trump, we should note. But in the first six months of 2018, when the Department of Justice was going after Shift and Swalwell, Apple had requests for nearly 2,400 of its accounts. The requests more than doubled in Apple's last report. It's the metadata that the Department of Justice is going after. 
um, which is not the content of the emails or the content of the phone calls or voicemails, but who was talking to who and when and where. Um, what is the bar for making such a request? Because I would think, and maybe I'm wrong, that it would be kind of high, but it sounds like maybe it isn't actually all that high. Well, it should be very high. Um, and I think that just as, you know, as people have been saying, the, the fact that they're going after the Democrats um, isn't of, in and of itself a problem if there's actual proof of a crime, if there's actually some kind of leak coming from the, the, from the congressman, from the, the... But would they need to know that first? Would they need to... Let, let, let me just invent something. Congressman Smith, let's say, okay? Would they need to say, we have evidence Congressman Smith talked to this reporter two days before this broke... Therefore, let's search for his metadata. Or is it more of a fishing expedition? I hate Congressman Smith. Let's search his metadata. Well, the thing about subpoenas is that subpoenas really don't have the same kind of level of protection that a search warrant has. Subpoenas are actually pretty much pretty commonly used. But as you've said, the point is, in a particular case like this, especially when you're looking at reporters and metadata and when you're looking at congressman uh, metadata, it really should be a very high standard. The standard is really left to the discretion of the department and the internal rules of the department, and that's very hard for anybody to actually penetrate. And particularly with reporters, when you're going after reporter metadata, that really cuts to the very core of the First Amendment, and it really raises very significant doubts about what the basis would be, because obviously the, the, what the effect is going to be is that you're going to have a massive chilling effect on reporters. I think the congressman and the, the intelligence committee is different, because I think the question there is what was the intent yeah. of the investigators? Did, were they really going after a leak? Or were they had, did they have political motivations? With reporters, I don't see any justification for ever going after their metadata, except in some extraordinary circumstance. Right, but as you noted, if it's left to the discretion of the Justice Department, if then you're leaving things to the discretion of prosecutors. I mean, I wouldn't want to leave anything to the discretion of prosecutors. But I want to play this sound, because according to Politico today, Elliot, yeah. uh, Barr said he didn't know about a leak investigation into lawmakers. He says Trump... Didn't know. But a moment in his testimony from 2019 when he was being confirmed stands out. This is then Senator, now Vice President Kamala Harris, questioning Barr. Take a listen. Right. Has the president or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation of anyone? Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh... Yes or no? Could you, could you repeat that question? I will repeat it. Yeah. Has the president or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation of anyone? Yes or no, please, sir. Um, the president or anybody else. Seems you'd remember something like that and be able to tell us. Yeah, but I'm, I'm trying to grapple with the word suggest. I mean, there have been discussions of, of matters out there that... Uh, they have not asked me to open an investigation, but... Perhaps they've suggested... I don't know. I wouldn't say suggest. Hinted? I, I don't know. Inferred? You don't know. That's certainly interesting in retrospect. And given the fact that this seemed to have started under Attorney General Sessions and was uh, continued by Barr, uh, I mean, you could see why he might give an answer like that. Does he face any legal repercussions? No, no, legal repercussions, no. But look, there, there's one answer to that question uh, in a functioning government, and the answer has to be no. The president of the United even though the Justice Department is installed by the president of the United States, it operates independently of him. And if the, you need to be able to say as Attorney General of the United States, no, the president hasn't ever asked me that. The idea that he just doesn't have a recollection of it raises questions, and it falls to Congress having oversight authority of 
the Justice Department to ask the questions now and bring him back there. You know, they can he can come voluntarily and they can ask him uh, even before you get to the question of subpoenaing the testimony, ask him to come negotiate over it and then bring him in. Uh, Bill, uh, final thoughts. You know, I think that the key issue here, I, I, you know, Attorney General Barr said that he wasn't aware of uh, the investigation of the, of the congressman. Yeah. I take him at his word on that. Uh, I think that he is he's gone on the record to say that you know, this was not something that he uh, knew about. You know, the question of uh, prosecutorial discretion is the key issue, just as you've raised. As a defense lawyer, that's what I do all the time. I'm a criminal defense lawyer. Vast majority of prosecutors, they exercise this discretion well. I may not agree with it. I might think it's wrong. I might have clients who I think are being mistreated. But at the end of the day, they do it the right way. And the question here, especially the way that this was done, going after reporters, going after potential pe- people who are potentially political enemies, uh, that is a real problem. So I think that that's where discretion has to be reined in. It would never be, the, I, we're, we're going to yeah. differ with you a little bit, it would never be the case that a member of Congress would be investigated and the Attorney General wouldn't be briefed on it. That's yeah. inconceivable. Elliot Williams, Bill Burke, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Ten senators working on infrastructure say they have a deal. Now the White House is pumping the brakes. That's next. Stay with us. In our politics lead, questions need to be addressed. That's the White House's reaction to a possible infrastructure deal negotiated by a bipartisan group of 10 senators, five Republicans and five Democrats, a deal that is far from being completed. CNN's Ryan Nobles joins me now. Ryan, do we know any more details about what's in this proposal? We know a little bit, Jake. Uh, This group of 10 senators, uh, five Republicans and five Democrats, did release the top lines uh, of this agreement that they hatched yesterday. They say it's going to be focused on core infrastructure projects. They plan to spend somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.2 trillion over the course of eight years. They also say they can do it without raising any taxes, and they're going to add about $579 billion in new spending. But that's all we know about this package. There are a lot of details that need to be filled in before you're going to get a real understanding of just how much support there is for this legislation. Already some uh, raising some questions, both Republicans and Democrats, even the White House, not 100 percent sure they're on board with this. But at this point, Jake, it's the only proposal on the table. So this is what everyone's talking about. All right. Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State joins me now. Congresswoman, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, What do you make of this bipartisan bipartisan proposal? If it came up for a vote, would you be a yay or nay? I I just don't think it's going to get there, uh, Jake. It's too small. It's a little bit higher than the last one. But remember, the president's original proposal is $2.3 trillion. And uh, I think that any smaller proposal that doesn't raise taxes and that is so significantly less is a disservice to the American people. Now, we progressives have said that if we are going to vote on a smaller bipartisan proposal in any situation, we would need to make sure that the reconciliation package with everything else is moving at the same time, that that agreement is done with 50 Democratic senators. But I just got to say, we have no reason to believe that this is going to lead to 10 Republican senators coming on board without losing Democratic senators along the way. Is there any wiggle room on your end that you see could allow for a bipartisan deal? I mean, Biden has come down from the $2.2 trillion to, I think, 1.7. Is is there no give on, on the progressive side? Well, no, I think he's come down to 1.7. But look at the number that's now being proposed, 579 billion. I mean, you know, it's like if you buy it, if you go into bid on a house and the, the 
you offer as your first negotiation and your second negotiation and then your third negotiation and you're still not even to you know 30% of the of the original asking price it wouldn't be considered a real negotiation so i just don't understand why we keep negotiating with these numbers that are so small when biden has made a significant concession uh on the top end you tweeted quote Mitch, 100% of my focus is on stopping the new administration. McConnell thinks the era of bipartisanship is over. Shocking. Now let's move forward on this bill alone. Now, as you note, there's a chance you could, Democrats could get something through the Senate by a simple majority if it's done through reconciliation. But you need Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, and other Democrats. Uh, Do you have any reason to think that they would be on board for what you want? Well, I think that they would be on board, I hope, for what the American people want, Republicans, Democrats, and independents. I understand that they and the president needed to really try to get Republicans on board. But what I'm saying is it was five and a half weeks ago that Mitch McConnell said 100% of his focus was on stopping Biden's agenda. And it was three and a half weeks ago that we got the first Republican negotiation that was something like $250 billion, right? in new spending. And so we barely moved in these negotiations. And at some point, we have to recognize that the Republican Party that we are trying to negotiate with right now is the same Republican Party that did not provide a single vote for the American Rescue Plan, even though they went back to their districts and touted what a great thing it was. They didn't tell their constituents they voted no. This is also the Republican Party that didn't provide us with 10 votes, Republican votes for a January 6th commission. So what makes you think that Mitch McConnell, five and a half weeks later, is going to change his mind and allow 10 members of the Republican Party to go along with this? I just don't buy it. Before you go, I want to ask you, because your fellow progressive Minnesota Congresswoman uh, Ilhan Omar is being scrutinized for a tweet she put out that seemingly grouped uh, the U.S. and Israel together with Hamas and, and the Taliban Uh, She later clarified the statement saying she was not trying to equate Democratic countries with terrorist organizations. In response, Michigan Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, another progressive, tweeted, freedom of speech doesn't exist for Muslim women in Congress. The benefit of the doubt doesn't exist for Muslim women in Congress. House Democratic leaders should be ashamed of its relentless, exclusive tone policing Congresswomen of color, unquote. Uh, Do you agree with Congresswoman Tlaib? Well, I feel that anybody who listened to Representative Omar's initial statement understood that she wasn't equating those things. She was talking about those countries in the context of the ICC. She clarified her statement. And I think there is no question that her view is incredibly important to the Democratic caucus, to Congress, and certainly to the Progressive Caucus, where she serves as the whip, and on the Foreign Affairs Committee. She is raising important issues And I think there is a continual attack on her as a black Muslim woman from the right wing. I just don't want to see uh, Democrats, um, you know, fall into that and allow these kinds of things to be used. So my statement yesterday said, I hope all of our colleagues just pick up the phone and talk to each other when there are misunderstandings. We can work this out as a Democratic caucus without doing public statements that allow the Republicans and the right wing media to exploit 
things that they suddenly smell as perhaps divisive. So that's my plea. Let's just pick up the phone and talk to each other. We're all on the same team here, and we desperately need Representative Omar's voice, just as we do with every member of our caucus. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State, it's always good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Great to see you, Jake. Uh, the first test for cruises in the post-COVID world hits a bit of a rough tide. That's next. In our health lead, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is just one shot, but they've had several mishits along the way. Now CNN is learning one of their early obstacles might be cleared. Back in March, you might recall, J&J doses developed at the Emergent plant in Baltimore were paused by the FDA because of red flags such as possible cross-contamination, improper handling and storage, and employees who were not properly trained. But now, sources tell CNN, the FDA is expected to clear 10 million Johnson & Johnson doses from that same Baltimore plant. Let's bring in CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, can someone who gets a Johnson & Johnson dose trust that it is safe? Um, yes, Jake, and I, and I realize that sounds counterintuitive given all that you've just said, but what has happened here is that the FDA has now gone back in and inspected these doses specifically, looking for their quality checks and all that. So the doses that are cleared, these 10 million doses, I think he can feel very confident in. I should add uh, that there were about 60 million doses that they did not authorize to be uh, dispensed. So, you know, it wasn't like they were letting everything sort of go through. And the facility itself is still not being cleared. But those doses, they, they've kind of gone through, you know, a very significant inspection. You should feel confident in them. Let's talk about the last frontier for vaccine eligibility, children under the age of, of 12. Dr. Cody Meisner, who's part of the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, said this. Before we start vaccinating millions of adolescents and children, it's so important to find out what the consequences are because the COVID-19 disease is disappearing in adolescents and children. Other members of the committee completely disagreed. They pushed hard for authorization for kids under 12. One top advisor reminded the committee that COVID can still kill children and has killed a couple hundred in the United States. You spoke with Dr. Meisner. What did he have to say? Well, he, he was um, it was very interesting conversation, uh, Jake. He, he was framing this as a we've got to really be careful about the risks and the benefits, which is an obvious thing to say. That's what you're always doing. You get an EUA because the benefits outweigh the risks. And it is true that the risks are lower in kids. Therefore, the benefits have to be there's even a higher bar that the benefits are going to have to meet. But, you know, there's, there's, it's important to keep in mind that, uh, you know, this disease, you cannot just look at hospitalizations and deaths. We know that people that even have mild illness can have long-term symptoms. I mean, this is a real concern. About a third of patients have had these types of long COVID symptoms, and that might happen in kids as well. We also know that kids are largely increasingly a reservoir of the virus in this country. It's where it's circulating is among kids. But I think, you know, sort of most, uh, you know, practically speaking, Jake, we get to the fall. You may have these uh, increases or upticks in, in case rates again. You don't want at that time to be saying, oh, now we need to figure out how to vaccinate the kids. They want to work on that process now. So by the fall, when the weather gets cooler uh, and drier, that they can be in good shape. And Sanjay, we learned some new information about these rare reports of heart conditions among kids. What do we know about that? Yeah, so we're getting some numbers now to, to be able to look at this. And we can show you the numbers here. But one thing that they always do when they're looking at this from a public health perspective is you keep in mind we're talking about myocarditis here. There's going to be what's called a background rate. 
How often would this occur if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic just for any reason at all? So look at the number on the left, age 16 to 17, about 2.3 million doses have been given. They saw around 80 cases of this myocarditis, typically up to 19 cases. And you can see the same sort of breakdown for, for older people as well, 18 to 24. It's rare. These kids, uh, uh, the, for, for all of them, the, the symptoms resolved. They were easily treated. So it, it is a, something that does seem to have a link here, but maybe not that concerning in that these were mild cases and easily treatable. We learned last night that two cruise ship passengers who, who had no symptoms tested positive for coronavirus at the routine end of trip test. Uh, it was the first post-COVID voyage for Celebrity Cruises Millennium Ship, which set sail Monday. They say they had a completely vaccinated crew and all the passengers were vaccinated, but still you had these two infections. Again, they were not sick. They were asymptomatic. Should vaccinated Americans uh, be worried about traveling? I, I really don't think so. I mean, you know, that, that's the thing. You know, everyone still has the hangover effect with what happened with Princess Diamond uh, Cruise Line. You remember, uh, I think we may have put, pulled the numbers, but, you know, some 3,700 people, 700 people got infected, seven people died. If you're vaccinated, you're, you're really well protected. I mean, I mean, there may be other reasons to not take a cruise, even pre-pandemic. Um, but as far as COVID goes, if you're vaccinated, you should be in good shape. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. Good to see you again. A politician facing a pile of shocking scandals may be gearing up to run again. We're not talking about Trump. Stay with us. In our national lead, early signs show that New York Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo might be trying to run for re-election for his fourth term, a record even his father Governor Mario Cuomo was not able to achieve. Now, the son, Andrew Cuomo, might have an even more daunting task at hand because he is the subject of at least two investigations by the state attorney general, one looking into sexual harassment and assault allegations against him, another on whether Cuomo misused state resources to write and promote his book. Cuomo also faces a federal investigation into whether he hid nursing home data from the public. As CNN's Bryn Gingrass reports, each of these, to say nothing of all of them, could be something of a political problem. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo cutting ribbons. Vax and scratch. Promoting vaccine incentives, carrying on business as usual. Top of the morning to you. That despite multiple ongoing investigations questioning his conduct and his administrations. And soon he may be asking voters for a fourth term. Cuomo has not formally announced a campaign for re-election, but the embattled governor is holding fundraisers, including a $10,000 a person gathering later this month, according to the governor's website. There are some people who are hesitant to attach themselves to him because of all these allegations and investigations. Others will say, wait a second, by the way, I'm with him. And there'll be more people who say that than not. The New York Attorney General's office is more than three months into investigating sexual harassment allegations made against Cuomo by several former and current aides. I thought he's trying to sleep with me. CNN has learned that several of the women are in the process of giving sworn testimony to state lawyers. And according to The Washington Post, one witness said those lawyers went beyond the subject of harassment and asked whether staffers were required to dress a certain way and if senior aides were complicit in the alleged misconduct. Governor Cuomo says he has never touched anyone inappropriately and has never made any inappropriate advances and says his actions have been misinterpreted. Some of his latest comments adding to the controversy. 
If I just made you feel uncomfortable, that is not harassment. That's you feeling uncomfortable. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, uh, who's written a book. American the AG's office American is also Lexington. investigating whether Cuomo improperly used state resources while writing and promoting his book about leadership during the COVID-19 pandemic. The people volunteered to uh, work on the book. And Cuomo is a subject of another probe by the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn. They're examining his administration's handling of nursing home death data during the pandemic, accused of covering up COVID-19 deaths, which he denies. The Wall Street Journal reporting that investigators subpoenaed materials related to the governor's memoir. Cuomo's office says they're cooperating with all the investigations. The only thing that can hurt him and put him out of business is, frankly, a criminal indictment. If that occurs, he's gone. But until then, he's not leaving Albany. According to a Siena poll released last month, 49 percent of New Yorkers don't think he should resign. But 53 percent of voters asked say they are ready to elect someone new in the 2022 election. Now, of course, there's also a more slowly moving investigation by the State Assembly Judicial Committee here in New York looking into a host of issues surrounding the governor. And at this point, Jake, there's no clear timeline of when the AG's report will be released. We do know, though, from The Washington Post that Cuomo and his top advisors have not spoken to the attorney general's office or the FBI. So we'll have to see how this plays out throughout the summer. Jake. All right, Bryn Grass, thanks so much. More ahead on stunning new abuse of power allegations. The Trump Department of Justice having seized House Democrats data from Apple. Will Congress call Bill Barr and Jeff Sessions to testify? Stay with us. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.